Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I'm here with Edmund Liao. Edmund, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, thank you. Edmund is a senior partner at Denton's Corporate Practice Group and head of the tax practice. He's also co-head of the Trust, Estate, and Wealth Preservation Family Office Practice. He has three decades of experience in advising multinational organizations on cross-border tax planning, transfer pricing, and tax disputes. He also advises on international trade issues such as customs, WTO, and free trade agreements. And Edmund, thank you for taking what is your Friday evening in your part of the world to join us today. Sure, I'm happy to be here. So let's start with kind of the, the geographic location. And I think you were, from reading your bio and your background and, and doing some homework on you, your own educational journey and experience really informs the work that you do today. Could you please give a little bit of background on yourself? Yes, sure. I'm a Singapore lawyer. I went to law school in England. I studied at Cambridge University in England. And after that, I decided to practice law first at Baker McKenzie, where I was there for you know, 20, 30 years in various offices, London, Hong Kong, Singapore. And then I was invited by the Singapore government to serve as a judge. So I, I did that for three years. I mean, that was something which I couldn't turn down. You know, it's a, obviously a great honor to be asked. So I, I did that for three years. And then later on, I decided to come back into practice again because I wanted to get back into my own area. And my own area is really uh, trust in estates and tax. So, so that, that's really uh, what I do for a living. And in the last two or three years, I've been focusing particularly on high net worth families, including their family offices, their trusts, corporates, and holding structures for their family, helping them with their family succession, family governance, and so on. 
all including including their tax planning because obviously tax planning of course is a big chunk of uh, of what we do for them so everything is sort of combined into a into a holistic product so let, let's start with singapore you know i've been tracking for the last probably 5 years this trend towards family offices globally but especially within southeast asia relocating to singapore and that's only been accelerated with the actions that china has taken from a capital control standpoint covid lockdowns and their activities in hong kong what is is it about singapore that makes it so attractive to entrepreneurs and family offices in particular well singapore is a is a key financial center in asia it's one of the handful of uh, global financial centers which are located in asia and i suppose one advantage that singapore has of course is a is a very business friendly tax system that's one but it's not only tax i mean uh, there's there's obviously a lot more to singapore than just tax i mean singapore offers political stability uh, singapore offers the rule of law is something that you know you don't often find in many other asian countries and i think you know what you were doing to just now you know what china has been doing obviously has has impacted the other major financial center in asia that's hong kong right so so historically hong kong had many of those same advantages as well but i guess in the last few years i think the perception is that Hong Kong has lost some of those advantages which it used to have and so people who previously would have gone to Hong Kong uh, particularly people from China but also elsewhere so many of these people have decided to come to Singapore instead i mean people have been coming to Singapore all the time so it's not just because you know of what china has done in hong kong but obviously it has it has accelerated this movement so so i think in the last maybe 2 or 3 years we've seen a tremendous acceleration of people shifting to singapore and it's not just family offices you know it's also their trusts it's also their family holding companies i mean singapore has many many other advantages which which we have always had and in the last few years i think singapore has also enhanced uh, some of the tax incentives which singapore has offered to attract family offices so that that's been another attraction and it seems like it's a fairly intentional policy from the government on down to entice capital to allocate there are there things in particular that they did you know historically you mentioned this has been a migration that's been going on for generations what is it structurally that has you know initiated that and then what are things that they're doing today to continue that growth yeah well as i said singapore has always been a financial center it was so you know for for half a century or more i think Uh, as i said the tax incentives are one of the major draws and i think again tax has always been there but i think in the last 5 10 years um we've seen a number of global trends that help singapore actually one for example is is the uh, global transparency that's going on you know where governments around the world and i'm not just talking about china i'm talking about virtually every country in the world is clamping down more and more on tax evaders so historically for example place their money in secret you know secret bank account overseas um to avoid you know avoid or evade paying tax and many of these places for example uh, offshore centers you know the traditional tax havens so we also seen for example movement away from the traditional tax havens and towards countries like singapore simply because the oecd the eu and other other you know other multinational organizations have been clamping down on the on the tax havens so that that's one that's one reason for shifting to singapore and of course that that's nothing to do with what china has been doing so so that that's something that's going on for the last you know 10 20 years 
And of course, the the other thing that uh, is going on, of course, is is political instability. And here, here, unfortunately, we're not only talking about you know China and Hong Kong. I mean, global in you know political instability seems to be taking place all over the world as well. So politics has become much more polarized. I guess uh, you guys in the U.S. have seen this uh, very clearly. But you know, the, it's a global trend. So again, it's not unique to the U.S. at all, unfortunately. It's happened in virtually virtually every country in the world. What that means is uh, people are looking for a safe haven. And obviously, Singapore, well, Singapore is one of the few countries that still offers political stability. So, so uh, you know, I think we, we used to take that for granted in, in many countries, right? But, but these days, I think fewer and fewer countries offer that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think we're entering into a phase of massive volatility, geopolitical security, which we took for granted over the last generation, can no longer be taken for granted. I want to revisit a comment you made because you've been vocal and outspoken on this. Help delineate a safe haven from a tax haven, because I think oftentimes Singapore is associated with that, but you you clearly draw a line there that it should no longer be considered a tax haven. Yes, yes. Actually, I, I say that Singapore was never a tax haven, but of course, your next question will be, what is a tax haven, right? So, <laughs> so a tax haven to me, and I think this is based on a lot of uh, studies that people in the OECD have done. Uh, a tax haven is not just any country that offers uh, no taxes, right? Tax havens, of course, offer a zero tax system, but that's not all they offer. So traditionally, a tax haven was a place that offered secrecy, right? You, you, would, you would put your money there, you set up your entities there, and nobody would know. Who owns that entity, and it's it's essentially it's essentially a place for you to hide. Essentially, that, that that's what that's what your traditional tax haven was. The other characteristic of your traditional tax haven is a place where people just set up bank accounts or people just set up empty shell companies, empty shell companies that have no real activities. So, in other words, you set up a corporation in whatever tax haven you go to, and of course. That, that corporation has, has no employees in that country, has no office, has no business. You know, it's just there to exist as a legal entity. That's all it is. And in addition, because it's secret, that is a convenient place for people to hide. Now, what's happened in the last, you know, 10, 20 years is that the world has become more and more transparent. And in many, in many countries, even traditional tax havens are now under pressure to, you know, to open up, essentially, and, and become transparent. And what has happened is that as the world becomes transparent, then people realize that they can't hide anymore. So if they can't hide anymore, then there's no point going to your traditional tax haven anymore because you can't hide that. Right? People will know. Your, your home country tax authority will know what you're doing. And so if you can't hide anymore, then you might as well go to a place which is a legitimate business center. So Singapore is a real legitimate business center and, and it attracts people who come here to run their business you know, and, and to have real activities going on in Singapore. So we'd love to hear a commentary given the, the statements you just made with this growth of the DeFi crypto community in Singapore. Specifically, there, that's obviously a, a, a tremendous market opportunity and a growing industry, but it does have some connotations of some of the more negative aspects associated typically with tax havens. What has that been, what has that been like? How has it been playing out in real time on the ground there? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. And I suppose I do have a number of clients in the crypto space as well. So, so I, I do a lot of tax planning for, for crypto clients. And um, 
crypto clients have also been very attracted to Singapore. Um, there's no question about that. I mean, Singapore has been one of the one of the major global hubs for the crypto for the crypto scene, and I think Singapore there is trying to is trying to strike a balance, right? So on the one hand, Singapore wants to be wants to be reputable, Singapore wants to be legit, and Singapore wants to be well regulated, right? But on the other hand, Singapore wants to do this without killing the industry. So it's it's really a matter of finding the right balance. I mean, regulation is of course not just on tax. I mean, regulation is on you know, securities, regulatory issues, it's on licensing, it's on investor protection, and so on. And it's also on things like, you know, money laundering, that kind of thing, right? Because obviously, uh, the, the crypto industry gives rise to risks in all those different areas, not just in tax. And obviously, there's a, there's a fine balance to be struck. I mean, our, our government now has a fairly, fairly comprehensive uh, regulatory licensing system. Um, so again, what they're trying to do is they're trying to attract legitimate players. They're, they're not trying to attract people who are trying to evade tax. People who are trying to launder their money. Those are not those are not the crypto players that Singapore is looking for. I appreciate that. It's it's very hard to navigate, but it, it does lead me to this broader question about how Singapore is managing to balance domestic growth and at the same time being open to this massive foreign capital injection that's experiencing. What's the government and policy been like along those lines? Yeah, that, that is another balance that needs to be struck because when, when lots of money comes in, it creates imbalances in, in our domestic economy as well, right? Obviously, for example, inflation has gone up, for example, which again is a, is a global problem. It's, it's not just unique to Singapore, not just unique to you know, the US or Europe or anywhere else. I mean, it's, it's happening all over the world and we, we are having that too. But I think in a country like Singapore, by the way, we are a very small country. Okay, so that, that that's the context uh, in which I'm I'm saying this. The smaller the country you are, the bigger the impact of these capital inflows, right? Because if, if you are a big country, then the capital inflow doesn't have such a big impact on you. But in a country as small as Singapore, I mean the, the impact is tremendous. And so that that creates its own problems and you know probably creates domestic issues as well. Because for example, when prices go up, then local people find that you know they can't afford many of the things that they previously could afford so for example housing right it's, um, it's it, there is now a housing problem where because because uh, real estate is so expensive now in singapore. i mean singapore is one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world and so because of that uh, lots of young couples you know who are trying to buy their first homes are having difficulties and and so the government is trying to do all kinds of things to counteract that so, I mean, whatever whatever you do, if you're a small country, it always has it always has a big impact. But in being a small country, we are also trying to be nimble and we are trying to be agile. Small countries also have certain advantages, right? Because you have more flexibility to do things that you know larger countries may find difficult to do. So it's a, it's always trying to capitalize on your on your strengths, right? And to to minimize your disadvantages. So it's a, it's always a very very careful balance. I would like to tighten up the conversation to focus on the family office space. As a segue to the comments you just made, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, I read recently about how they're tightening the tax exemptions you know, necessary for family offices. They're, they're making, and, and I may get this directionally wrong, but if you're of a certain AUM, you have to hire a certain amount of local individuals. You have to invest a certain amount into the country. What, what do you think the policies behind that? And do you think, I mean, there must be pros and cons, but what is your general take 
on some of those tight, tight tax exemptions that they've introduced recently? Yeah, that's a good question. And you are right. We have seen a tightening in the past you know, year or so. So when, when these tax incentives were first introduced a few years back for family offices, the, the original idea was really to, to promote the fund management industry. So, you know, Singapore is a financial center. The government is obviously very keen to promote the fund management industry. So, so they first introduced these incentives to attract funds to move into Singapore. So, you know, hedge funds, PE funds, uh, venture funds, and so on. Those were the people that, you know, these incentives were originally targeted. And then after a while, the government realized that the same incentives could also be used for family offices. So the idea is, in addition to having the PE funds and the hedge funds, we could also attract family offices by shifting the management of their funds, right? So in us, wealthy families also need to manage their funds, right? They are, in a way, similar to, similar to hedge funds and, uh, and PE funds. Right? They also need to manage their funds. So that's what the government did. And the government extended these incentives, which were originally for the funds, they extended them to wealthy families. So that was the origin of the uh, tax incentives for family offices. Now, what then happened is that many wealthy families, especially from Asia, uh, especially, for example, uh, wealthy Chinese families who wanted to look for a place where maybe their younger generation could relocate, right? Because... For example, if they are if they are trying to diversify their risks away from China, for example, they want some other place where they can where the patriarchs could send their could send their children, and their children could could live there, could make a new home there. Of course, traditionally, I think you guys in the U.S. will be very conscious of this. Lots of people from China wanted to move to the U.S. and and they still do, but many of them are also looking for other places to go to as well, right? So. So traditionally, they've gone to the Western countries, right? They've gone to the US, they've gone to, they've gone to the UK, they've gone to Australia, they've gone to Canada, and so on. But now they're looking for other places as well. And in particular, they're looking for a place where, where they, can, they can live in an Asian society and still be quite close to home. So Singapore is, Singapore is a good, good option for them. Now, what, what some of these families have done is they've said, look, I can shift some of my family members to Singapore to run the family office. So I set up... I set up my family office in Singapore. I can apply for the tax incentives and I can then get an employment pass or I guess what you guys might call a work visa, right? For, for my children to live in Singapore, manage, manage my money. And that paves the way for them to move to Singapore. Now, what has happened recently, of course, is that the government seeing this flood of applications, I mean, there's, and there's been really been a flood of them, right? The government has, has now decided, well, maybe we can be a bit selective. Because we don't really want people to use the family office just as a device to get an employment pass to relocate their children to Singapore. I mean, that's not really the idea. So now they're asking more questions like, well, you know, when the patriarch sends his children to Singapore, are they really coming to Singapore in order to manage the family money? Or are they coming to Singapore to do other things, for example? In other words, this, this can't be used just as a, just as a device to get, to get some immigration status in Singapore. I mean, if you are really managing your, your family's money, I think that's okay. But of course, there are lots of, lots of families who have shifted some of their family members to Singapore who are, who are not really managing the money. And maybe, maybe that's just a way of getting another passport, right? And some of them have not even have not shifted entirely to Singapore. So I think the government has decided that, you know, that, that wasn't really the purpose of these incentives. And so that's why we see this tightening. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? 
Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash capital club podcast for more information and to sign up today. Yeah, I, I personally bemoan the reduction of HB1 visas being issued by the states because it is a global arms race in terms of getting the most talented people available. And, and I think Singapore, it is a zero-sum game and they've benefited from that. I, I, I've seen some statistics, and I'm sure these are ballpark, but number of family offices in Singapore has doubled to roughly over 400 between 2019 and 2020. I'm sure it's progressed from there. You know, when it, when it comes directly to the family office space, how does that kind of migration align with the state and legacy planning that you all do as part of your scope of work? Yes. So um, the, the setting up of the family office, as I said, you know, and the tax incentives that were awarded by the authorities to, to encourage this were primarily aimed at persuading families to shift the management of their funds, right? To Singapore. But of course, in doing that, they then set up legal entities in Singapore to hold their assets. And people like us will come in because we don't only give tax advice on how on how their entities are structured. Well, first, in terms of the taxes, obviously we have to look at not just Singapore tax, but also have to look at the taxes back home, for example, because obviously if the shareholders of these entities in Singapore are, say, from China, for example, then you also need to look at the Chinese tax issues. So you have to look at their tax issues back home. That's one. Then you need to look at the tax issues in the countries where they have invested their assets. Because although their entities are in Singapore, the ultimate investments may not be in Singapore. I mean, the ultimate investments could be anywhere in the world, right? Because there's no requirement that all these family offices must invest in Singapore. We, we don't have such a requirement. And the reason for that is Singapore is a very small country. So obviously, people will want to invest globally. I mean, you know, wealthy people will ne- never want to be tied down to a very small country like Singapore. Of course, of course, they will invest in Singapore as well. But frankly, you know, Singapore is a tiny place, so they will be investing their assets globally. And so we will need to help them to look at the tax planning of how they can invest globally. So, for example, if their entities in Singapore are investing back home in China, they are investing into Europe, into Australia into India, Indonesia, and so on. Then, for example, we need to look at the tax issues in those countries. And we need to look at how, for example, they can make use of uh, Singapore's double tax treaties, right? When they are investing into China or India or Indonesia and so on. So those are, those are the kind of tax issues that we look at. But of course, when they set up their entities, then we also look at the question of who will be the shareholders of those entities, right? Will it be the parents back home in China? Will it be the children in Singapore? Will it be the other children who have moved to the US or Australia or the UK or somewhere else? So we need to look at all those issues. But we also look at family succession and governance because it obviously ties in very easily because when the, when the families are structuring their assets and structuring how those assets are, are held, they will also need to look at family succession issues. Like, you know, what will happen when, when the parents pass on, right? So their parents, for example, need to make wills. Their parents will create trust, you know, to benefit their children and so on. And that brings in not only tax planning, but obviously succession issues, governance issues, and so on. Part of the part of our job also is to is to advise patriarchs on how to set up a governance structure so that, you know, when when the patriarch is gone, 
his children won't fight, right? So obviously there are more and more family disputes these days. Um, the media is full of them. So that's another area that we look at. In terms of the family office culture in Singapore, I saw recently that the Super Return Conference was in town. You know, you've with COVID, you've, you've, it seems like they're back open for business. I'm sure there's been a lot of family office formation happening recently. Give us a more kind of boots on the ground sense of what is the local family office culture right now in Singapore? Yeah, I mean, you are right. Um, there's a lot of bus- business, there's a lot of activity going on. But I think, to be honest, you know, there was activity even during COVID. <laughs> I mean, it, it didn't really stop. In fact, for people doing this kind of work, um, the irony is that during COVID, many patriots, you know, realized that they, they, weren't, they weren't going to live forever. I mean, people, people were suddenly, suddenly conscious of that, right? Because they, they suddenly realized, look, no matter how rich you are, you, you won't live forever, right? And you could be struck by COVID just as easily as a, any poor, poor man could be struck by COVID, right? You, you're not immune just because you're rich. So that realization, I think, really uh, encouraged a lot of people to actually start doing something. And, you know, people who, for example, had procrastinated in making their wills, in setting up their trust for their children, uh, many of them suddenly realized, hey, look, I have to do something now you know, in case something happens to me. So, so there was actually a lot of activity, right, even during COVID. But of course, um, the activity, I guess, was, was still limited. There was a lot of planning. There was a lot of discussion going on. But the activity was still limited because people couldn't travel, right, because, because borders were closed during that time. Singapore, I think, frankly, has also benefited from, you know, having managed the COVID pandemic relatively well. So I think I think Singapore also enhanced its reputation globally for that. Um, I mean, if you look at the statistics, I think you will see that you know the, the the number of deaths in Singapore in proportion to population was one of the smallest in the world, and the economy of obviously went down because we we did have lockdowns in Singapore as well. But uh, the economy has has come back. Um, in fact, a, a country like Singapore, I mean, ordinarily would would probably suffer more economically than, for example, a, a large country. And that's because in a small country, if your borders are closed, effectively your your economy is, is at a standstill, right? People can't go anywhere. In a large country, you, you can still travel within the country. But in a small country where Singapore is just a city state, so it's just one city. So it's like if you are in a, one city and you can't move in and out of that one city, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to do any business. So in a small country, actually, Singapore suffers even more. But in spite of that, Singapore has, has since uh, opened up again. And, you know, Singapore has bounced back. So I think that that actually actually has enhanced Singapore's reputation and I think has also, has also attracted more people to come. What's the biggest misconception that people have about Singapore? Well, I think, I think uh, a lot of people have a misconception that, you know, in Singapore, they are, you, you have no liberties, you know, that uh, you don't have any human rights and that, you know, the government controls everything you do. I, I've heard people in the States, you know, say, oh, it's... Is Singapore the place where where, where they, they cane you for chewing gum? And of course, that's that's uh, totally untrue, of course. I mean, the reality is that, uh, yes, I mean, it is true. I mean, law and order is very important here. The, the police is very effective at what they do. But the result is that Singapore is a very safe place. And uh, and I think we, we appreciate that. You know, Singapore is a place where, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I have a wife. I have a daughter. And, you know, Singapore is a place where my wife and my daughter can 
can walk on any street in Singapore at any time of the day or night, and I'm not concerned about their safety. Yeah, not the case in the U.S., unfortunately, in many places these days. This has been terrifically helpful. As we round out the conversation, you mentioned that it's become, Singapore has become a place where a safe haven, especially within Southeast Asia, but there are also some risks associated with that. Are there things that you know, concern you or potentially large risks to Singapore continuing its growth and its position as this safe haven for capital within the region? Yeah, I think there are always risks. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no way to get away from risk. I think, for example, one of the big issues that worries us is, is the global situation, right? Singapore is, Singapore is friends with both the US and with China. I mean, that, that's the reality of it. Um, and it seems to be getting harder and harder to be friends with both the US and China. So that, that worries us. I think so far we've managed it quite well. And, and maybe, maybe so far at least, I mean, that's been another, another attraction of Singapore. In other words, people from both sides can come to Singapore and, and, be, and be among friends. We obviously have always, have always done a lot of business with both the US and with China. The US is traditionally our, the largest foreign investor in Singapore. China is our largest trading partner. So I don't think we can afford to, uh, to give up on either relationship. But, but that's one of the difficulties. And I think the instability in the world as well uh, is also a worry for us because as a small country, obviously, we, we depend on global trade, right? So if global trade stops for any reason, that's obviously a big problem for us. And of course, if, for example, if capital flows around the world stop, you know, as, as seems to be happening these days in certain cases, you know, with a, for example, with the war in Ukraine and what's happening with Russia and, you know, sanctions and all that, Obviously, that threatens to, threatens to stop the flow of capital around the world as well. Threatens to stop trade, stop the flow of capital. Um, you know, for a small country like us, we are very open. We're an open economy. I mean, we, we depend on capital flows. We depend on trade. Um, that, that, that's obviously a worry for us. So I think that that's something which our, our government is concerned about. And, and our government does go around the world trying to, you know, trying, trying to persuade all the large countries to be more friendly to each other. <laughs> Yeah, the events in the Taiwanese Strait must be disconcerting for everybody. Oh where, yes, and, and yeah. yes, and, and Singapore has very close ties again with both sides. So so again, that that is also a problem for us as well. I mean, the the only time in history when there was a summit between the presidents of China and Taiwan, I mean, that summit took place in Singapore, because uh, yeah, because uh, I, I suppose you know both both sides felt that you know Singapore was was a neutral and independent party they could trust. Just as, uh, just as you know, the, the, just like the summit uh, between the US president and the North Korean leader took place in Singapore as well. So, so, I mean, Singapore is that kind of place. We want to be neutral. We want to be reputable. Uh, we want to be, I guess, trusted, trusted by both sides. The Switzerland of Southeast Asia, very difficult to pull off, but there are huge benefits for sure. I want to thank you for, for joining us today, especially it's, it's, late your time on a Friday. I do have a question that I, I ask my guests. You have a family, you have a lot on your plate, you're very busy professionally, especially given time zones, I'm sure you keep some odd hours. Is there something that you do every day that, that brings you peace in your life? Well, I, I like traveling. Um, now, unfortunately, I couldn't do much of that during COVID. <laughs> not a but... great, not something great <laughs> the last few years, yeah. Yeah, but I, I must say, 
in the last year or so, I mean, the world has opened up. Uh, Singapore has opened up. So, so I've been doing a lot more traveling in the last year uh, than, than in the two years before that. So I'm, I'm quite happy. I'm, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about where, where next to go. And I, I think about planning all my trips to various places. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm very curious about the world. So, so you know, it's, it's, it, suits, it suits the job I do because I work with clients from all over the world. I work with clients who invest all over the world. I work with clients whose families are dispersed all over the world because that tends to be the case when you're dealing with wealthy families. So, so you know, it's, it's part of the curiosity, right? I'm curious about the world. So it, I'm always interested to find out about different places, you know, different backgrounds, different cultures and so on. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, that, that keeps me going. And, and so what's on the list? What's top of the list for you? Where do you want to go right now? Well, there are still a lot of places that I wanted to go to in the past, which, but, you know, haven't, haven't quite made it yet. But, you know, for example, unfortunately, uh, China is still closed. I mean, there are various places in China that I want to go to. To be fair, I have been to various places in China already, but, you know, China is a vast country and there are always places, you know, that I haven't been yet. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of places to go. The world is getting smaller, but, but it's still, it's still quite diverse. And in fact, ironically, as the world gets smaller, your ability to go to different parts of the world is actually greater because there are there are more there are more transport links. So as long as as long as the uh, travel industry continues to open up following COVID, then we'll be able to go to more and more places. Well, Edmund, I hope you can get back on the road soon and see some of those places. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It was a great conversation. Fascinating to learn about that part of the world that I've never been to. It's on my short list of places to go. So I hope to get there soon. For our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. Please leave us a review. Let us know your favorite part of today's episode. And Edmund, if folks are interested in connecting with you and learning more about the services you provide, what's the best way for them to get in touch? The easiest way is to just drop me an email. So um, my, my, my email address is on the firm's website, but you know, it's essentially it's edmund.liao at dentons.com. Terrific. Well, I want to get you on with your weekend. I want to thank you for your time and your expertise. And hopefully I will see you in Singapore in the not too distant future. Sure. I hope so. Okay. Take care. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.